Hi Ved, how have you been? Good, good, bro. The lockdown is getting like too extended for my liking. Uh-huh. I'm sure you know, but I'm keeping myself busy. You know, like finally started watching Netflix shows. Have you seen uh, Money yeah, Heist? Money Heist, yeah, Money Heist long before the lockdown, but it's up to season two, you know. Okay. Uh, these new shows have come up. Like not that I'm watching them, I just caught five minutes of Mahabharat. But yeah, okay. you know, Mahabharat and Shri Krishna and Ramayana, they're airing them again. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of our lot of people in India are taken up with these shows. They might have actually it's too slow, you know. The the way the scenes move and like, the pace at which they take the narrative forward. And like, but worst I think is so many people are talking about on social media these days, but so many of them are misinterpreting it left, right, and center. I mean, mm-hmm. now that it's been aired in new contexts and new times with 21st century problems around the viewers, uh, it's been taken in a very in a very botched up way. Like I'm like very far yeah. from what the original intention of the text is. Mm-hmm. But I mean, honestly speaking, I think people have al- have always uh, botched up the Mahabharat and the Ramayana, and I don't <laughs> think people have actually understood what it stands for. And I think the reason for that comes down to the fact that we have been applying Western standards to understand Indian myths. So just to give a simple example, True. let's take a, if you go and ask a class six boy, what is the Ramayana about? He'll probably tell you that the Ramayana is about good versus evil, good embodied in Ram, evil embodied in Ravan, Ram beats Ravan, so good prevails over evil. And even like the usual annual Dashera celebrations are testament to that. But that's because we have been applying the Western concepts and Western narratives to the Ramayana to understand it, that we get this concept of good and evil. Fundamentally, the Ramayana isn't about good and evil, it's about something else. And, you know, I was reading about uh, the three main narrative structures that myths essentially Mm. contain. So you have uh, one structure, which is the classical structure or the Greek structure. Then the second is the biblical structure, which comes from the Bible and forms the basis of Christianity. The third is the Hindu structure. Now, Hindu in the sense that any concept or any structure that is original to India geographically. This is not so much about, you know, Hinduism and religious definitions, but concepts that originated in India. What what really struck me was the differences between these concepts. So you have the Greek concept, which primarily is about the cultivation of heroes. So it's good versus evil, but it's also about the idea of heroes aspiring to a certain level of greatness. So a classic example of that would be would be Achilles, you know, in the Homeric epics. And what Achilles does to turn the fate of the Battle of Troy and then rise to heaven. And and the Greeks even have a special heaven for these heroes called Elysium. Uh, The biblical narrative is more about finding a leader who can mobilize the people and uh, take them towards a collective goal. And this leader is not an egomaniac, he's not a narcissist or he's not a deluded leader like fascist leaders have been in the past in the real world. But this leader is genuinely enlightened. And he has knowledge of what constitutes uh, insight or wisdom. So again, a classic example would be a Moses or, well, a Jesus Christ more pertinently. But the Hindu narrative, interestingly enough, is not about leaders. It's not about journey or transformation. It's not about good and evil. It's basically about being, about existing and finding your own way to salvation. And salvation from... Uh, again, salvation not in the Christian context, but as a release from the cycle of birth and rebirth. And it's premised on karma. So what you have between Ravan and Ram in the Ramayana is not so much a struggle of good and evil, but a struggle of two different approaches to life. Uh, Ravan with his more narcissistic knowledge uh, of 
all the scriptures and his ego whereas mm-hmm. ram being somebody who in spite of being a divine avatar does not understand mm-hmm. his own potential and constantly lives in doubt as he goes on to fulfill what he sees his duty oh, so it's two okay. different approaches to life okay the greek narrative i largely agree with but i think uh, the hindu narrative i will disagree with to large extent so See, uh, the Greek narrative is far more nuanced than this, right? Uh, I can make it into three large divisions, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, telltale features of what would comprise the Greek philosophy is that, uh, first, is Stoicism, right? Reason is the soul of everything they do. Mm-hmm. Especially if you read uh, their philosophers and if you read the early uh, their early thoughts, how they made rational the basis of interpreting everything around them is a large part of how they then turned out their future literature. Mm-hmm. The second thing is i think uh, they focused a lot on how their divinity was very localized okay so even though there is a pantheon of the gods and they their divinity gets very localized in specific areas like athens or apollo when specific people worship specific virtues based on what the seasons and what the eco- local economy around them is so it gets boiled down like it gets so fragmented that you can't identify this particular virtue coming out of the greek narrative mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to pinpoint and say that the binary idea is a specific thing which you find in greek myth okay. for example there there came a time when i think the greek and hindu narratives started doing some like very similar things like hesiod for example where he starts in greek as opposed to what homer used to do he didn't talk about gods like he started talking about heroes and virtues and uh, even dead people and they're making great legacy for them he started about like talking about how these virtues are things people should imbibe in themselves and mm. his stories were to that effect mm. the third thing where they come very close to the karma idea is the idea of the stain of sin remaining on future generations mm-hmm. right so for example when prometheus is writing about his about his tragedies they talk even in uh, zeus and how he takes uh, even the pandora's box and how he sends a gift to pandora and the many myths even uh, hercules and how uh, because his cousin because he wasn't liked by the person who he he was a slave to and he had nothing to do with the enmity it was created by another person altogether who sent him to work as a slave mm-hmm. the 12 tasks of hercules which is so romanticized it it comes it takes origin in the idea that you have a stain of the sin which is not yours of what not yours in the making right mm-hmm. that is where you get closest to the later part of the hindu philosophy but i still think that we need to look at hindu philosophy in a far more diverse manner right yeah. so when you say hindu you do you mean the later hindu texts like mahabharata ramayana and uh, and the things which we associate as connotations of hinduism today or you go back to sanatan dharma right which is say what mm-hmm. i identify with like i would identify as hindu because because of the persian they they say they said uh, whoever lives in india is a hindu so the word hindu mm-hmm. comes from her hindu anyone on the other side of the hind where yes, the hind is yes. called hindu and right? so it has nothing to do with the religion what yeah, yeah. did kind of break the gaudian knot of philosophy was rigveda hmm. right and the rigveda does not mention karma it mentions an order or a rite which is a specific set of things which you must do mm-hmm. they give you values they give you give you ways ways of leading your life mm-hmm. and if you violate that you commit a sin mm-hmm. right and they call it as aghas and it proscribes kindness truth people like yes. things binding on people it tells you adultery and witchcraft is wrong mm-hmm. where we find karma and this is very interesting is that around say 1000 bc or some 900 bc when they started going south 
these guys started meeting tribes who believed in superstitions and worshipping trees and spirits and all kinds of voodoo indian voodoo mm-hmm. and to explain concepts to them they were in a way dumbed down they were in a way evolved and instead of wiping these tribes out the aryans evolved the rig ways to the next end where the new atharva ways or the yajur ways or the later ways came out mm-hmm. and that incorporated the, the the idea of if you break the rig because they needed to be far more firm with the new populists coming into their social spectrum yeah they they came up with the idea of there is a reward slash punishment and how oh look uh, man is an architect of his own fate but if you don't do this you won't go to the milk and honey land of heaven which the rigveda talks about right mm-hmm. which is where karma comes in and even then karma doesn't get crystallized till the vedanta philosophy comes and talks about karma yoga and gyan yoga and raj yoga and bhakti yoga mm-hmm. it tells you why there is a good and a bad Uh, not an evil it doesn't identify evil but it tells you that there are specific things you must must do based on which you will either become an ascetic and you merge with god or you become a householder and reach some kind of a purgatory or you become wicked as a whole and get reborn as a lower form or like an mm. ant or a dog mm. or something like right? mm. and it does tell you that look there is there, there is no particular right way so that's when you're completely correct exactly. it does and, say there is no particular way of going about life that there is one there are of course some things which are inviolable like mm. you can't cheat on you can't cheat on your partner for example mm. but it tells you that if you're within the reach then there are multiple ways to approach life and yes. choice is an illusion because anything you do with concentration is leading you to god and the talk of knowledge is the final thing so yeah the yeah. entire genesis is important mm. and i think what is what is interesting yeah. and what makes uh, the hindu thought more appealing to me in this regard and again mm. just to clarify i mean hindu from a geographical sense of the term not in the religious sense of the term yeah. Uh, yeah so what appeals to me is the fact that truth is seen as a concept of multiplicity so there is not one single narrative so for example in the christian texts you do get the overwhelming narrative of christ and what christ mm. prescribes so while hinduism mm. gives you advice gives you suggestions it doesn't mm. in terms of its myths actually concretize one single narrative and prescribe that one single narrative so the truth is more evenly distributed even if you look at the characters of okay. hinduism in the myths so for example you take a mahabharat there are lessons to be learned from from all the characters from yudhishthir to arjun to even duryodhan to krishna no one single character can be hailed as the ideal role model because they quite simply are not they are more realistic in the sense they have their own flaws and there is a lesson to be derived from each one of them whereas i think with the uh, with the greek legends and even with christianity there is greater concentration of virtues in a single individual so that they become larger than life so i think that's another thing that appeals to me about uh-huh. the about the hindu characterization and the the other thing before uh, before we move on i think the idea of truth not being singular is also very important because the moment you say that okay truth is concentrated in one figure and that is uh, a sort of symptom of myths that are revolved around the idea of the prophet so for christianity or like islam the idea that there is one single individual that knows all the truths in the world because he is an embodiment of god is really problematic i believe because it is what leads to the birthing of hierarchies because once you have knowledge concentrated in one individual you suddenly have power that comes to the knowledge concentrated in that one individual and that creates hierarchies which are problematic whereas i think what the hindu philosophy tries to enunciate is that there are things you can learn from the pauper as well as the prince as well as the philosopher and nobody in their individual capacities has access to universal wisdom correct uh, i don't think i don't think the it is as clear as that 
Hmm. I do agree with large parts of it. For example, the Hindu structure clearly tells you not to create a hierarchy, except in terms of who is more knowledgeable and less knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Right? Even though there it has it makes some exceptions. Hmm. But I don't think there is a unity of narrative uh, more prominent in the Christian beliefs than in the Hindu beliefs. Okay. Tell you why? Because even even in the Hindu beliefs, they they talk about one bottom line. Like even even though the bottom line is difficult to identify many times because of the metaphysical nature of the text, for example, Tatvam Ati or Thou art that, mm-hmm. as in I am the spirit and like everyone's one one cosmic brain called the Mahat, that is very apparent throughout the throughout the Sanatan Dharma text and even today. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the Christian philosophy, where even in the Sermon of the Mount, for example. He talks about the kingdom of God belongs to X, and happy are those who do specific things, and the kingdom of God belongs to them, and in the many apostles. And if you notice, so so the discourse around whether the resurrection is true or not, whether it happened or not, and the Catholic, Protestant, and Greek Orthodox divisions, mm-hmm. it, it's because there are, there's a lot of dispute also regarding what Christianity believes in a certain set of ideals, right? That's fair. Mm-hmm. But what constitutes a higher ideal and lower ideal, and whether... Uh, God meant something to be as as deep as level X and level X plus one mm-hmm. is still very much debated within the followers of the religion. Mm-hmm. And I think the the like we can't pinpoint and say that Christianity gives you unified narrative. Because yeah, even yeah. if you go right down to the, the Bible, they 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 they've given you a lot they've given a set of they've given a code of conduct mm-hmm. and not a bottom line. Yes. Whereas they do give you a bottom line in Hinduism. Mm-hmm. Yes, but but also what I what I mean when I say that uh, Hinduism gives you this multiplicity of truth is that even if there is a bottom line and even if there is let's say less or more uniformity than what the Christian narratives provide, and I think this is also important to note that the Bible was compiled by numerous individuals over numerous years, mm-hmm. so there is bound to be a sort of incoherence in the narrative. But what I'm trying to say is that even within individual narratives. there is greater ambivalence in the hindu texts than there are in the christian ones and the greek ones and that ambivalence is what i think is very important because it allows in individual interpretations of what constitutes the idea of morality i mean hinduism or rather the hindu myths are at least to my mind primarily a model because they don't contain the idea of right or wrong as we come to understand from christianity or as we come to understand from the greek myths it's more about focusing on uh, what you said about karma and also the chain of events and causality that if you do something one thing leads to another so for me god mm-hmm. therein in the hindu myths becomes more of an accountant than a judge mm-hmm. and trying to figure out the causality so so do you think that this concept that hinduism purports uh, to produce mm-hmm. that there is no right or wrong except there mm-hmm. is there are certain things which lead to more things and which lead to other things and you need to be aware of mm-hmm. this chain of events So do you think this is a healthier philosophy in in today's world where you know narratives are so difficult to understand because of post truth and polarization or do you think that mm-hmm. fundamentally it's still more important to create those binaries of right or wrong because our conception of justice revolves around understanding what is right and wrong Oh no so uh, I do think the hindu philosophy and the idea of not having a binary is far more important and far more relevant but i want to add a, add a, like make a slight mod, uh, modification to what the philosophy is right mm-hmm. for example it is amoral to a large extent in when it talks about the consequence and cause effect because it tells you things like look every action you take is just a wave forming in your head and it gets subtler and subtler with time mm-hmm. it goes back into memory and it's going to somewhere 
influence whatever you do in the future because it never fully goes out of existence. So everything you've done in a very scientific way still continues to impact you. So it was a very amoral substitute, like prescription. Hmm. What, but it was moral to the extent that right from like 1200 BC in the Rig it talks about something called the Purushar, which is meaning of Purush, like meaning of men. It to be very like literal in translation, which gives you a very micromanaging code of conduct. Mm-hmm. And there, if you don't, if there, it's prescribed as a moral. And there's, mm-hmm. there's no two ways to it. So if you follow it, you're moral. If you don't follow it, you are immoral. And even so that, with that as the bedrock of morality, it then leaves you free to far more agency as compared to what we think today. Like it's not as prescriptive as we say it is today, but it is prescriptive to some extent. But coming to the idea of what is more palatable for like a 21st century person, I do think the appreciation of nuance is a big problem we have today. Right? Yes, absolutely. and that is something that's something we need to do. Very simple example is like take Mahabharata again, right? Hmm. If you're uh, talking about, so we all are like Arjun was a great archer, right? And uh, if you if this was a Salman Khan film or if this was a Bollywood film, there would be a binary, hmm. and the Pandavas would kill the Kauravs, and like so be it. Yeah, and they'll be what celebrated is, is and venerated, the part of us. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah, and, 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 and uh, Salman Khan, Arjun is the hero. Yes. And what they do here is that even when Vishnu uh, Pitam is on a bed of arrows hmm. and he's thirsty, right? They're, so there are two things more there. First is that Krishna tells him that you must pay obeisance to your elders, right? Regardless of whether you're on the other side of the war, because there is no war after that person is on his deathbed. Hmm. And he gives him a drink of water. The second more noticeable thing is the bottom line that your skill is not to be a destructive skill even if you're in on a battlefield. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to still work as a constructive skill. And that nuance is one of the things you will ignore in modern times if we, because we, we are so used to a masala and a binary of good and bad. Mm-hmm. He uses his arrow to break the earth at a point where he knows there is water yes. and create a spring so that the man who's lying on a bed can mm-hmm. open his mouth and water can go in. Right, which so these nuances I think comprise the spirit of the Mahabharata more than the war of the Kauravas and the Pandu. And there are billions of such nuances. Absolutely. And also it's important to understand in the context of the Mahabharata that there were no real winners per se. Like, okay, the Pandavas mm-hmm. beat Kauravas mm-hmm. and they assumed control of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. But they also mm-hmm. lost their sons. Like all the Pandavas lost their sons, and that is mm-hmm. that is as big a loss as you can have in in your lifetime as a parent. So Definitely. Yeah, and mm. I think what you mentioned about, you know, a typical Salman Khan film or a Bollywood film, mm. I think if you just look at the the idea of fiction, whether it be in books or whether it be in, in cinema, mm. the fact that there needs to be a narrative where the, there needs to be a protagonist and there needs to be an antagonist and the story needs to be told mm. through these binaries in less or more terms, less or more nuance is a fundamentally Greek narrative. But it's amazing how we have assumed that this is the natural order of things. But in life, that's that's mm-hmm. not the case, right? Because, I mean, of course, if any one of us is telling their life stories as part of an autobiography, mm-hmm. we will create heroes and villains in our own stories. But an objective person mm-hmm. would be able to tell you that in most cases in life, there are no heroes or mm-hmm. villains. We are all a mixture of contradictions. I think that's what mm-hmm. the Hindu myths try and address to a certain extent, mm-hmm. uh, better than perhaps yes. the Greek or the biblical narratives do. Yes, I think the, the Hindu myths talk a lot like Harry Potter, you know. There's, they tell you there's light and dark in both of like there's both light and dark in all of us. Yes, and the ultimate embodiment so, of that Harry Potter would be Severus Snape. Exactly. That's how, so he only says it. But I think you know we 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 can we can put it down to two reasons. The first mm. is that the Hindu myths like the Sanatan Dharma text 
have evolved. Like I talked about like the superstition, the Yatharu Veda, the new tribes that came in. Mm-hmm. It's evolved to suit the superstitions of people over the ages, right? Mm-hmm. And especially with Buddhism and Jainism and a fundamental deviation that happened in terms of karma and yana. And whether we support just the rights robotically or whether we support the idea of knowledge will set you free. Mm-hmm. Like that evolution, like somewhere led to a lot of corruptions, right? And like that happens because of the second reason, which is that everything in Hindu or in the Sanatana Dharma philosophy comes very tightly packed with the metaphysical. Mm-hmm. So just compare the just compare the biblical and the Hindu philosophies, right? Without yeah. going into detail, mm. it talks about the the Sermon on the Mount, for example, or the Acts and like the epistles. Mm-hmm. They give you very simple ideas of how God performed His miracles and how people prayed and how things came about as a result and what realizations came about. And it's made in a way that appeals to the peasants because it was someone who was born as a born God but born as a commoner among commoners preaching mm-hmm. to the peasants. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the Vedic seers were the more erudite part, like part of their society, and the texts talk in a way of a poet come academic talking down to the people, yes. and it requires a lot of translation and a lot of dumbing down before it can be made palatable and interpreted in more humanized scenarios, mm-hmm. and that's not always possible, especially yes. in times where you see war or in times of tumult in society. Mm-hmm. We lost a lot of the. Basis of what these, well, of where the Vedas and where the Upanishads came from, mm. which is not, which, which is why Christianity, for example, is simpler. Yes, it's more accessible. It's right? something that you can explain more easily exactly. to, to a commoner. Exactly, and it talks of miracles. You know, so what mm. the problem I think is that Hindu, like the the, the Sanatan Dharma texts, try a lot to also be a science. Of yes, course, in a lot yes, of yes, ways yes, they yes. do a great job, mm. but but Christianity never tries to do that. Yeah. I still think the Sanatan Dharma texts are far more profound. Because they end I up giving you a lot of things, which yeah. And I think that's but Christianity is just more people. Mm, that's yes. because the Hindu myths are primarily philosophical texts that have been adapted mm. into religious practices, whereas the the other mm. myths are structured more along the lines of proper dogma or proper religion. They are not as much a philosophical explanation of the world as the Hindu texts are. Mm. Uh, but moving on to to a different angle. Let's say you had to bring up a kid, and some point in our lives we'd have to do that. Uh, you have to bring up a kid. So, which worldview would you would you would you introduce them to? Would you go with the Greek narrative or oh, the Hindu, good versus evil? The, the, Hindu, narrative. the Hindu narrative. Uh, okay, but uh, but why? Primarily why? Yeah. So let let let's just take an example, right? Uh, so this this is this is great, greatly interesting. Let's compare a Greek and a Hindu like parable. Okay. Mm. Uh, a biblical and a Hindu parable. Say the theme is utilitarianism, right? And trying to teach him why it's okay to do the to choose the path of logic. Good. The Bible in the Acts of the Apostles tells you how the Peter and John performed the miracle, and the people of Israel saw that. And Peter and John were suddenly deified, and they told them that you must do good, and but they didn't understand. So the people of Israel went and prayed, and the gods, like the earth shook and God gave them gave them realization for their prayer and they suddenly realized that some kind of like a socialist message of some kind, they sold all their property, all their livestock, and with the money they bought bread and gave it to the poor and everyone like lived in a far more cooperative and equal egalitarian way, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one. Second, so so the conflict there was a very essential, should I care for myself and do the best I can do and just for my family or a so, more socialist construct? That's the conflict. Mm-hmm. On this side, the Hindu philosophy gives you, uh, in, like in the in the Vedanta philosophy, 
there is a there's a poor boy who doesn't have who who's been told that the Bhagavad Gita imbibes every all all the truths of the universe and you must read it if you want to gain enlightenment and help the world. So he starts reading it, but he's poor and he doesn't have light, so he starts reading it by the light of a candle. Yeah. And along comes a man and he tells him, Look, because you're reading by the candlelight, there are a lot of insects which are burning to death because of because of the candle. Mm-hmm. And so but he says, But the, the larger good is that I'm reading the Bhagavad Gita and I can go and become a far more value-adding mm-hmm. member of society because mm-hmm. I do that. So like, who cares about these things? Yes. But he said, even the Bhagavad Gita will tell you Ainsa Parma Dharma. You can't be violent even to the smallest of creatures. So there's essentially a conflict. Yes. And that's where Vedanta comes in and tells you that in this situation, the larger good makes, like, because there is always good and bad, good and bad, mm-hmm. there is right and wrong. And you must take an accepted cost where in the face of a larger benefit, when the larger benefit is very evident. Mm-hmm. And then it talks about how to identify larger benefit. Right? Yes. And I think this is very... But look at, the, yeah. look at the level of reasoning. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm explaining to the child, this mm-hmm. arises out of reason. The apostles of the act, not to say all of Christianity is like that, but the apostles arises like primarily from a diktat. And a diktat yes. is so much more difficult mm-hmm. to explain than mm-hmm. reason. And the thing is, once you start questioning that diktat, you don't arrive at a premise mm. from which you can assume mm. wisdom. You just end up in a position mm. where either you become a non-believer or you feel that you have to be dogmatic and you don't question these mm. things because they are the words of God, as it were. But I think the, the other thing that you also spoke about is that in terms of decision-making, it's important to understand mm. that each decision comes with its own costs. So, for example, today, mm. if I'm wearing a pair of Nike sneakers... I also have taken into account that somewhere in some town of Africa, maybe child laborers were used to manufacture these Nike sneakers, at least if these sneakers were manufactured in the early parts of the 21st century. So the fact that what I am enjoying as a luxurious item and what I am sort of regaling in as, as a comfort product can be the consequence of somebody's immense discomfort is is something that can create cognitive dissonance because I may be a huge fan of Nike, I may be a huge fan of Roger Federer who who used to endorse a Nike and yet at the same time I have to realign my faith in Nike with the concept that this company used to exploit child laborers. There are consequences attached to each and everything and no action in and of itself is noble or no action in and of itself is completely disgusting is, is very important for the understanding of decision making I believe. And even if you take into account let's say sustenance, right? I mean the food that comes on our plate is the food, irrespective of whether you're a vegetarian or a non-vegetarian, is the is the yep. product of certain compromises made by certain actors in the chain. So if you, like, for example, are, are grazing the cattle or if you are tilling the fields, then there mm-hmm. are microorganisms that are perishing. So in order to create survival and in order to have sustenance, there needs to be compromise and there needs to be, to put it plainly, killing. So society is about sort of trying to adjust and create a balance between those conflicting elements in between those compromises. I think that's what the Hindu mm-hmm. texts arrive at more profoundly than the others. Definitely, definitely. The Hindu texts talk 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 a lot about cooperation. It stems from the idea that they say oh, like every being is one. It's very mm-hmm. close to like so they also try to justify it through string theory. Mm-hmm. Like the very religious like religious version of a string theory and how every everything is just basically one connected form of matter. But they do tell you that the final aim is parokkar, mm-hmm. that you keep doing good to others. And like that forms the bedrock of everything and it will also be like the one way to atone for all like like misdeeds you've done. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what you mentioned was on how uh, 
now like it calls for like the idea of a one person or a one profit calls or some kind of a dilution of the message right mm. what you get again and i think that's very true what happens is that with one role model for example the christ mm-hmm. and for, as opposed to no god man in hinduism you have many diverse models you have you have a very clearly interpretable idea of what that person is saying what the prophet is saying right mm. but you have very diverse models because it def- it does not go into nuance and mm. you really like that about hindu philosophy because each character is representing something and mm-hmm. it so for example if you're giving me a shakuni Hmm. or if you're giving any any people like kans who also have lot of great traits like even ravan for example is a brahmin and a very like well like very he's known person and there is yeah he's he's a scholar yeah. he's a scholar and uh, and durvasa rishi is one of the most accomplished rishi the hmm. most accomplished sages but he goes and kicks god on the chest hmm. and god god punishes him hmm. because that they tell you that good comes mixed with its own aberration Yeah. and the aberration can't be accepted hmm. at the same time they show very realistic flaws in their character except hmm. of course when god is reincarnated yeah. and they tell you that even though we are edifying and romantically like celebrating the good in this we're telling you look at the larger picture in things hmm. there will be like bad things about each person right and for example yudhishthira is not, not not at all a practical character hmm. Right? and the tell you look at the larger picture yes and i think what this also creates the moment you start seeing the shades of gray is that mm-hmm. you also start having sympathy for people who are not of the same stance as yourself so maybe in the mahabharata mm-hmm. your religions maybe towards the pandavas because you think they represent dharma mm-hmm. but you also can sympathize mm-hmm. with certain aspects of duryodhan you can also sympathize with certain aspects of shakuni and karna who are on the other side of the spectrum and this is very important in today's day and age because in the age of hyper social media activity we are becoming mm-hmm. a polarized planet so it's becoming more difficult for people to communicate across ends of the spectrum so simple example right today for example i mean i identify myself as left of center in the political spectrum if i go ahead and speak to somebody who's on, who's a right winger and we start debating a certain issue very quickly our ideas become filtered by our identities because we can no longer sympathize with each other as individuals we are merely debating and creating a discourse on the basis for identities and that is problematic because the moment you detach sympathy from conversation you are prone to making a discussion about ideology and more prone to sort of going down the the spectrum where what hinduism describes as vivad rather than samvad vivad being that your identity precedes the idea and samvad being the other way around so i think in a polarized discourse hindu myths have a lot to teach us about how to inculcate sympathy in each other so that we just start listening you know just start listening better instead of all these trolling oh, yeah. labeling people as bhags or secular and all that stuff so even right right from the samvet it talks about how there is no in, in the samatha brahman it talks about how there is no uh, wrong there is only error and yes. throughout all samatan dharma philosophy is telling you that death life good bad is all a difference of degree and not of kind mm-hmm. in the sense that you don't hate the sinner and i think that's very important especially in terms of of course there are evils right in 21st century you must apply it very selectively and you know yeah. there are specific evils mm-hmm. but the idea of condemnation is far simpler if you're thinking of something as a wrong and not as an error on part of something who would otherwise who of someone who would otherwise be part of the breach which is the same as your mm-hmm. and when that happens i think it bars your bars any further discussion on the subject if you're on news media and a shouting cascade the rapist cascade the rapist right mm-hmm. it's not a wrong it's perhaps not a wrong clamor right that's debatable mm-hmm. 
But to make that the be-all and end-all is, is very wrong because if condemnation becomes the sole hyperbole, mm-hmm. the idea of going beyond that to investigate the why things happen, why, what the systemic problem is, doesn't happen. And that's why we need to push people towards that mm-hmm. kind of a discussion and it doesn't happen exactly. organically. And Hinduism think, solves yeah. that problem. Hmm. And a very good example is what you said about the rapists, right? Especially in light of the uh, the Nirbhaya case and the hanging of the rapists that happened, mm-hmm. I think, what, sometime in February? So, I mean, capital punishment is something that a lot of people just take as a moral absolute because they feel beyond a point in time certain crimes deserve the punishment of death. But that is where we have yeah. to question, right? I mean, fair enough, it's a heinous crime. There is no debating that. But what is the practical purpose of hanging somebody to death? Because that is effectively the foundation of a system of retribution on part of the justice system mm-hmm. and not a system of reformation. Mm-hmm. And are we going ahead and saying that no criminal is in a position or, or rather there are certain crimes where a criminal cannot be reformed? And are, are we saying that? And in that, that case, does that person become dispensable? Are questions that we need to exactly. sort of tussle with as a society. And that is where Hinduism with its idea of not condemning people creates a more discursive environment where you're addressing these issues because you feel that every issue requires questioning. So I think this is a lot exactly. yeah. So you know how it, how how it differs from what we do in twenty first century is essentially that uh, today we think there is a binary which is an which is uh, in, like not unbreakable, right? In the sense that if there's someone who is incorrect, if you are agreeing to capital punishment, you're saying he'll always be on that path, and the order which you subscribe to cannot ever absorb that person who you've identified as an enemy of the order. Hmm. What what the basic text on the other hand tells you is that look knowledge will set you free to the level where you increase in consciousness, you realize what like what the truth is, whatever it may be, it doesn't tell you there is a single answer to meaning of life. Hmm. And it then tells you you'll be one with the element. Right? So it gives you it tells you how higher purpose of any sort, whatever the purpose, even if it's sweeping the floors, right? If you identify that as a purpose, you do it in the best possible manner and it, it leads you to a knowledge which sets you free and makes you as conscious leads you to a super like a supra conscious level. Right? Mm-hmm. What how how that is opposed to our uh, opposed to our current times is that we think we cannot reform. And this tells you that look, reformation will not happen. The the most beautiful part there is that Vedanta philosophy, like Swami Vivekanan preached that so much, right? Mm-hmm. He went and said that uh sorry, this is the Sri Ramakrishna quote. Uh Yatha Pat uh right? There are as many philosophers there are as many philosophies as there are philosophers, but the truth mm-hmm. is one. Yes. There are many parts of philosophers. Mm-hmm. And that that's crazy because we don't we, that's one thing which is so lost in the kind of crime and justice systems we see mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. We don't think that like we don't think there is a possibility of a philosophy that opposes ours. Mm-hmm. Which is why these problems. If we just feel that knowledge in itself yes. isn't one, mm-hmm. but knowledge by itself is something to be romanticized, it just solves so many things. Exactly. And the idea that argumentation is about reaching a position where you can come up with silver bullets and when you can mm. come up with mm. propositions that <laughs> propositions that cannot be defeated uh. is is fallacious in and mm. of itself because the purpose of argument mm. is that there is always a rebuttal no matter wherever you are and i think that exactly. level of discourse is mm. something and to be honest it was there in, in the in the hellenic tradition in the hellenic tradition mm. outside the myths so with like the socratic mm. dialogue is based on that concept of dialectics but I think it wasn't mm-hmm. embodied as much in the Greek myths and certainly not in the Christian myths. Mm-hmm. And perhaps to a certain mm-hmm. extent, even if it was in the Hindu myths, it hasn't become as accessible because, as you said earlier, the language is something that is not democratic. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think as we sort of wrap this discussion up, it's important to remember that mm-hmm. we take so many things for granted, right? 
uh, i mean yep. of course with the coronavirus that's ravaging the world mm-hmm. we come to realize mm-hmm. a lot of these things that we take for granted our liberties our friends mm-hmm. our relationships but also the narrative yep. the stories that we have been told the motive of revenge for mm-hmm. example that you know if somebody does harm mm-hmm. to you it's okay if you get back mm-hmm. at them and you know the the mm-hmm. other day i was listening to this interview by uh, subramaniam swami where he's talking about how his politics is dictated by revenge so he said that he was snubbed by the liberal intellectuals when he came as a conservative intellectual into mm-hmm. india in the 70s mm-hmm. and he named amartya sen and singled him out as somebody who did not like subramaniam mm-hmm. swami's right wing proclivities and now okay. that his ideology is in power he openly said that i'm going to take back control mm-hmm. and i'm going to take my revenge on these people that that's not me earlier and that's such a hollow mm-hmm. ideology coming not only from a great public figure of eminence but also mm-hmm. from any individual but we as a society have tended to take this narrative of revenge for granted because we see that all the time reiterated in popular culture the idea of the hero avenging uh, the villain uh, the avenging somebody that that he yeah. has lost and taking revenge mm-hmm. on the villain is so common right and i think that's where we need to start questioning exactly. these narratives where do they come from and how can we actually evolve them oh so a lot of things there right so to uh, so let, let's put it in a born the greek and a hindu way right mm-hmm. in as the greek sense you know like the the goddess nemesis where the word nemesis comes from yeah very ironically the at least the most i don't know if it's the or just the most romanticized story of hers but she takes part in avenging insults for a nymph who's not even related to her Mm-hmm. she enters a situation and suddenly she uses she takes vengeance on part of echo who's a good who's a who's a forest nymph and when she's not even part of the situation and she introduces the concept of revenge to two perfectly beautiful people and mm-hmm. greek mythology is telling you that interpersonal equation can function in the absence of the concept of revenge and that this is always an interference that is the role of nemesis in the story without going to the story itself right mm-hmm. secondly i think a lot of our philosophers differ on differ with like primarily because he reminded me of him amartya sen right because hmm. when he talks about argumentative indian and the yes. con- the philosophy the the pol- the way we debate hmm. that's not true the hmm. the way we debated was not vivad which is what we do today yeah. what we did was shastra which was like analysis and engagement so as to reach a very conclusive meaning of what the shastras or what the text told us mm-hmm. but what do you tell ask about the the characters right i think it's very important is even if you're studying like shakespeare or wordsworth so so also if you're studying vedic texts or mahabharata and ramayana right mm-hmm. when you're analyzing their characters you go back to the context in which they were formed exactly. like you can't know the poem unless, unless you know the poet right mm-hmm. so i still think that if you're going back to the socio economic lives of the vedic ages and how it evolved how they went down south met different tribes how it was corrupted and evolved and things being thought of as evolved but in a sense corrupted later on mm-hmm. and why buddha essentially preaches a lot of hinduism which is fundamental some fundamental changes mm-hmm. to jainism i think that social social economic genesis has to go hand in hand if you're trying to understand what the characters mean because if you appreciate just the binary and if you just take away the binary mm-hmm. then i then i even know people who can identify the mahabharat like talk of things in the mahabharat and because they're thoughtful enough and morally like bankrupt enough they can they can justify all their vices through characters in the mahabharat right they can justify gambling and drinking and whatever mm-hmm. but if you appreciate the nuance you understand what it truly means absolutely and i think therefore uh, in the final part of this discussion we can safely yeah. say that yeah. the biggest takeaway from talking about myths mm-hmm. is that the mm-hmm. one lesson that all these myths teach us whether it's the greek whether it's the bible whether it's uh, hindu myths mm-hmm. is that you've got to question 
you've got to question structures that are imposed on your behavior that are imposed on your political identity that are imposed on your need on your daily functioning of life because the mm-hmm. moment you stop questioning you start taking things for granted mm-hmm. and that's where everything from the appreciation of a nuance to the detection of mm-hmm. contexts to the understanding of motivations behind yeah. characters and attribution of those motivations start becoming problematic mm-hmm. so i think exactly. it's, it's time and to change the discourse with... around myths yep. and look at them as sort of mm-hmm. enhancing inquisitiveness rather than providing answers mm-hmm. asking the right questions instead exactly. of giving us the right answers exactly look at them in their original in their authentic meanings right mm-hmm. and like start questioning so that you reach the authentic meaning because it's not easy to and like be 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 willing to make your own conclusions absolutely great so i yep. think on on that note we'll keep it at that and uh, next week hopefully ah, we'll yeah. be asking more questions uh, even if we aren't able to <laughs> arrive at the answers Definitely. Okay. Chalo. Bye. Chalo. Bye. Hi, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of That's What We Said. If there are stories from mythology that have shaped your worldview or transformed your thinking, do let us know in the comment section. Press the bell icon to subscribe and receive updates on our latest podcasts. Ved and I will be back asking more questions in search for the elusive answers. Till then, take care.